Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and right now I'm here all by myself. Uh, Our various members are scattered at points of the globe. Richard and Mike are both in Europe after the Cannes Film Festival. Richard is actually still there, so in a minute we'll be hearing a dispatch from him. He's talking to Joanna about what he's seen out there in Cannes, including Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a movie with Robert Pattinson in a lighthouse, lots of intriguing things happening out there this year in addition to all of the amazing red carpet fashion that I've been pretty fixated on. And then in the back half of the episode, we're going to hear a conversation between our TV critic, Sonia Soraya, who you've heard on the show a few times before, and Leslie Headland, who is one of the creators of Netflix's Russian Doll. And they get really in detail about what it takes to create a show this complicated, how they pitched it and kind of said from the very beginning, yeah, it's going to be more than just a cool show about Natasha Lyonne in the East Village. Although if you're watching the show, you might not know that. And there are some surprises as you watch the story unfold. And she talks about how they timed that out and the quote unquote, save the clock tower moment that you build to and lots of other really detailed stuff about that pretty incredible show that if you haven't watched, you should probably watch it before you listen to this, uh, but stay tuned for that. Uh, But first let's hear from Richard and Joanna. All right, we are delighted to be joined on the podcast today by a very special guest, straight from the Cannes Film Festival. It is the renowned Vanity Fair critic, Richard Lawson. Hello, Richard. Bonjour. <laughs> what a treat for us. No, uh, Richard has been soaking in all the best and brightest films at the Cannes Film Festival, and he is here to tell us all about them. We are going to start with, I think, this niche little-known filmmaker that is just like popping at the film festival. No one's heard him before. Is Am I pronouncing Quentin Tarantino? Is that... Quentin Tarantino. Oh, très bien. All right. So uh, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, these Charles Manson, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie film. Uh, This is what everyone is dying to hear about. Richard, talk to me about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the festival programmers did a kind of mean little thing where they they scheduled the biggest movie, arguably, at the festival for the second week of the festival. So some journalists were, you know, they had booked their trips and they had to leave before the movie screened. But it meant that the ones here, I mean, the lines for this thing were insane. There was a whole badge. So all the, you get access into the screenings based on your badge color. And so it starts with white and then goes down to pink and then blue and then yellow. And everyone in the yellow line, which was probably, I don't know, over 100 people, none of them got in. so it was it was quite an event, and um, I don't know that any movie really could ever live up to that amount of hype. Right. Um, but I will say, as a positive for the film, which I, I did review on VF.com, if people want to read that, uh, is that the two lead performances, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, um, playing these... DiCaprio is a, a kind of fading TV actor in, in 1960s Hollywood, and Pitt is his... Well, stunt double, but also drinking buddy, chauffeur, all these other kind of things. Um, They are so good in the movie. And yeah, and and Tarantino really, you know, say what you will about some of his other kind of choices in the movie. He's so good with actors and he just strips away all the sort of 
gunk of like who these people have become in, in, in sort of our like like the fame and celebrity and tabloid stuff and just locates like their star quality in the purest sense. And it's really kind of remarkable to watch. That's amazing. Um, I'm, and I'm so excited because I think a lot of people, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio won his Oscar and then just sort of stopped working as much, which is fine. Take your take your victory lap, do whatever you want, Leo. And then Brad Pitt obviously has been sort of bedeviled by some personal things. I feel like we haven't seen like a great Brad Pitt performance that we were like really swept up in in a very long time. And so I think that's part of the huge pressure around this movie is people just really want to go to the movies and enjoy a Leo and enjoy a Brad performance again, you know? Well, exactly. And I think that both of these actors are, I mean, this, you know, these are <laughs> very niche problems, but they're two very good looking, yeah. you know, cis, straight white guys. And I think for a lot of their careers, um, maybe Pitt more than DiCaprio to an extent, have been kind of running away from their good looks and their sort of like natural movie star charm. And here's a movie where, I mean, Leo's character is kind of a shambles, but like in some senses, but like Tarantino really has them leaning into this innate thing, you know, I mean, that sort of ineffable quality that, you know, there are many great, great actors who could never be marquee idols, you know, Um, but Pitt and DiCaprio are certainly two of the people who can and have been. And, uh, you know, even though DiCaprio's character in particular is, you know, an alcoholic who's a mess and who has all these career anxieties and, um, you know, you see him in various states of disrepair throughout the film, there's still just this, like, glow. Uh, that's the word I kind of kept using and then deleting in, in, in my review uh, of, of <laughs> right. star power. That, like, I, I think it, you know, this is a movie that Tarantino made uh, as a sort of love letter, uh, in a sense, to aspects of older Hollywood that he loved. And um, he, he gets at that, at least in, in these performances, kind of reminding us of like what a movie star can do. Amazing. And like one of, I think we were talking about this on the, on the podcast earlier where there are a lot of people who really want to go and enjoy this Tarantino film. And then there are a lot of people who are worried that like we wouldn't be able to enjoy this Tarantino film a because of um, Tarantino's own, you know, history and the implications around it. And also maybe some problematic subject matter. And I know that there's been this sort of idea, like let's not spoil this film outside of Cannes. That has been a whole top secret. Don't talk about what you saw, but like the concerns that a lot of people seem to have about um, Tarantino taking on a story of the Charles Manson murders and Sharon Tate and all of that. Do you feel like those fears were put to rest for you watching it? How do you anticipate, quote unquote, the discourse uh, handling this particular film? Well, I think that's a really important and tricky question in that, yeah. like, you know, I, I saw the movie, I liked parts of it, I didn't like parts of it, and then I had to rush home and write a review to get it up before the embargo lifted or when the embargo lifted. And, you know, in my sort of rush to write, I mostly focused on DiCaprio and Pitt and what a joy it is to see them kind of operating at 100%. And then later that night, I was at a party talking to a colleague and he was like, well, let's let's think about like what the kind of like hot takes are going to be or the or the and, and, and valid ones. I don't mean that term derisively. I mean, Absolutely, like, yeah. you know, um, and he started listing and I was like, oh, my God, I forgot to mention all of that. And and, you know, there 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 are things as uh, varying from the way that Bruce Lee uh, is in the movie. And, and he's kind of made a fool of to uh, kind of make Pitt's character look that much cooler. And I think that's a problem. I certainly think, you know, problems of how women are treated in the film. Um, you know, it, I, I don't think that the movie is at all um, immune to those things. And I think it won't be when it comes out in the States in July. I think those are conversations people are definitely going to have. Um, and they're ones that I maybe, you know, should have, with, you know, with myself and sort of analyze like, why with a movie that has all these obvious issues, why I sort of was content to focus on the two, those two performances. So, um, I, yeah, I, I think that Cannes is an interesting place for that kind of thing because uh, while there is always discussion, particularly from Canadian and American journalists and some British journalists, about these problems of various facets of representation, can as a whole, it kind of ignores that stuff, you know, and, right. and um, not always, but um, it does. And so I think that the mostly very warm reception that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has received here, I think it's going to be very different when the film gets stateside. Interesting. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you want to hit on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before we get to Joanna's most anticipated Cannes Film Festival film? 
Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there is a certain side narrative that's interesting about the film and about Tarantino in that, mm-hmm. like, you know, he had issued this letter out to critics that was actually read before the screening by a guy who does a lot of the moderating for the press conferences here, which I've never seen happen before, where he was sort of saying, like, please don't, sp- I have a message from Mr. Tarantino, like, please don't spoil various things. So there's a sensitivity that Tarantino's walking into this premiere with and, and walked into it with. And um, there was the press conference, we're recording this on um, Wednesday afternoon, can time. And and there was a press conference scheduled for midday today where at the press conference, a journalist asked Tarantino why Margot Robbie's character, I mean, I guess it's out of the bag now, she does play Sharon Tate, why she doesn't speak more. Um, she doesn't mm. have a lot of lines on the movie. And he got really angry and I um, hope I'm not speaking out of school, but he canceled interviews that were scheduled afterward because he was angry about the, this question at the press conference. So I think that, you know, the, the can has always been very friendly to, to Mr. Tarantino. He won the Palm d'Or here 25 years ago for Pulp Fiction. I think that 20 19 American press when this film starts junketing in the US I think if he's you know being sensitive now I think he's he, he might be in for a rough ride all right well uh, looking forward to that maybe not but uh, let us talk about another film this one stars Taron Edgerton Richard Madden a host of other people this is Rocket Man here's my number one thing I was I was hanging on the edge of my seat to find out how Rocket Man played at can this is the Elton John uh, quote unquote, I'm going to use quote unquote biopic, um, you know, starring Taron Edgerton is Elton John, who does a lot of his own singing. Also, I should say also starring Jamie Bell, uh, someone I've loved for so long. And uh, the main criticism I've heard from people out of Cannes is that this is less of a biopic and more of a musical. And uh, my response to that was, and what's the problem there? Exactly. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really, I cannot wait to hear what you think of Rocketman, Richard. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing is when I thought it was more of a biopic, I was real, you know, I didn't have to drag myself to see it, certainly, but like, I don't like music biopics. I don't, yeah. I, it's not a, it's not a genre that really appeals to me. And I think that, you know, as something that was parodied in, in Wonk Hard, the John C. Riley movie, like they're, these films follow such a programmatic formula, you know, right. and and I don't think that Rocket Man doesn't do that. I mean, something again that I said in my review is that it does, but what it also does with Dexter Fletcher, who directed it, and the weird story with him is obviously that he kind of pinched hit for Bohemian Rhapsody after um, Brian Singer was released from the project, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, he adds to it by making it more of a musical. I mean, there is real like diegetic singing in the movie. Other characters sing other than Elton John. It's not just him in recording studios or performing on stage. Other characters sing. The music kind of informs the narrative in a way that's much more familiar to people who are fans of traditional musicals. I really appreciated that. You know, I think it's a it's a fun take on a pretty staid kind of stale genre and. Um, but again, this wouldn't work either way, whether it was straight biopic or pure musical, if the performances weren't good. And Taron Egerton as Elton John, uh, I think, does a fantastic job. I mean, he's doing his own singing. He has to play a pretty wide emotional range. Um, the movie primarily focuses on Elton John's rise to fame, but uh, in, in particular his struggles with addiction and um, a little bit his struggles with his sexual identity, but that's resolved a little bit more easily than um, than the drug and alcohol stuff is. So he plays all of those beats from kind of elated and fabulous on stage to dark and pounding vodka in his you know bedroom really well. And I think it's a, a really fascinating and uh, successful expansion of Taron Edgerton's star profile, who you know heretofore had been kind of known as a comedy action guy. Yeah, absolutely. You liked it. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> that makes me delighted. We are on the same page. Of of the people you talked to who also saw it at Cannes, like, what do you anticipate? Is this going to hit with general audiences the way that Bohemian Rhapsody did? Is it a little challenging in a way that maybe will prevent that? What are you anticipating uh, it will do back here? Well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the question on the ground here. You know, the... Uh, the the studio, I think, I believe it's Paramount, um, had a big splashy beach party after the premiere. You know, they really go, they really went hard on it here. Um, Elton John performed, and then Taron Edgerton got up and performed at the party. I mean, you know, so they both did a song, which was really exciting. Everyone had their phones out, which is sort of dismaying to see, but you know, whatever. That's it's it's the nineties. And the question is, okay, so is this the new, you know, less than a year later, is this the new Bohemian Rhapsody? My answer to that, though, you know, take this with a grain of salt because I'm not like an industry forecaster or box office forecaster, is I think that for whatever reason, Queen holds a certain place in 
the cultural, you know, English language speaking world, like that, that, that imagination in a way that Elton John maybe doesn't. And I think part of that cynically, I think, has to do with the fact that while Freddie Mercury was a queer person, he also sang things like, you know, we will rock you and we are the champions, these things that have been right. adopted by sports fans. And so what does that mean? It means a lot of straight men like those songs. And I don't know that straight men and, you know, and they're by no means the only moviegoers or ticket buyers. I don't know that they connect to Elton John's music as well. And I think that like some version of the hetero patriarchy will conspire to in subtle and, and sort of subconscious ways to make Rocket Man not be quite as successful as Bohemian Rhapsody. Then again, I didn't think Bohemian Rhapsody would be a hit. I was obviously very wrong. So maybe Rocket Man, when it comes out um, very soon uh, on May thirty first, um, will will be the smash hit, uh, a, a smash hit similar to to Bo Rap. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm really hoping for I want nothing but the best of that film. I want a Taron Egerton Oscar campaign like all the way through. This is all I want. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm both comforted by the assurances that we heard that you know this film wouldn't try to code Elton John's sexuality in any kind of way. You know, like that it was just mm-hmm. like, yes, this is a big gay musical. And I would like to believe that we are ready for this big gay musical, but we shall see. Um, is there anything else you want to hit on on Rocket Man? Well, yeah, I mean, we've spoken about Edgerton, but I, you know, I did, you, I mean, Jamie Bell is great. He plays Bernie Taupin, who is the longtime lyricist for Elton John. Yeah. Um, and I wish we'd gotten to know him a little better because you, you, you know, you hear these songs as, and they're used in the movie to reflect the kind of undulations of Elton John's life, but you're like, but Bernie Taupin wrote those lyrics. So who was he and what was he feeling through all this? Um, and and Bell is so good in it. So I, I wanted to see more of that. Um, and I wanted to see more of Richard Madden, who plays um, John's one-time manager and lover, uh, who turns out kind of bad in, in at least the movie's narrative. And um, he's just got this palpable magnetism and and he and Edgerton have incredible chemistry in the movie and uh, they get a you know they get some scenes together certainly but I, I kind of wanted more of that but yeah I think the big the big talk will be about Edgerton and you know as we kind of look toward Oscars and all that but um, I think at least in terms of raising their sort of profiles as as you know beloved British actors I think uh, Richard Madden and Jamie Bell come off quite well in the movie too. Excellent. Well, I cannot wait um, for this movie. This is this is my this is like this is my. It already has the palm door of my heart. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. So let's roll on to another film. This is a film that I've been excited about ever since I saw a photo of Robert Pattinson and Will Defoe sort of squinting grittily off into the sunset. This is Robert Eggers who did The Witch. This is sort of his follow up, The Lighthouse. Um, Richard, what like you know is this? New Moon, Twilight level good. Is this Breaking Dawn, Twilight level good? No, like how is how is Robert Pattinson, our new Batman, uh, in this in this great film? Yeah, I mean the Lighthouse is funny because it screened here uh, in Directors Fortnight, which is a sort an unofficial sidebar of of the Cannes uh, Festival. Um, they you know they've been around for fifty years, so it's not like they're you know. Uh, new to the game at, at all, but it's not officially can. And yet, here's a movie, you know, with a with a guy who's been in several can films, uh, Robert Pattinson, um, you know, leading this thing. It was it was one of the hottest tickets uh, at at the festival so far. So um, anticipation was high, especially because you know, including myself, people were big fans of The Witch. Um, the Lighthouse is very different in uh, stylistic ways. Um, some of the language, the kind of complex language, is similar to The Witch, but it is shot in a square. As- aspect ratio it's shot on 35 millimeter mm. black and white film yeah it's weird as hell both Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are giving these theatrical performances and it really really worked on a lot of people it worked less on me okay. but that's but that's just because I, I found it to be like a kind of like well okay so Robert Eggers you can do this but like to what end like what's the point of this right. that said it's really exciting to watch Pattinson you know completely shed whatever vestiges of, you know, Edward Cullen um, were, were, were still stuck to him and just be like, I, I am this weird indie auteur actor. Of course, that comes on the heels of him being announced as maybe the next Batman, which is sort of a fun right. reversal. But, <laughs> right. but yeah, he's, he, he, his accent work is not consistent in it. He's doing some weird mix of Brooklyn and Kennedy, mm. Boston. But his commitment to this very, very uh, um, weird project um, shines through. And uh, it's really exciting to see him in that mode. 
Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw The Witch well out of the glow of, you know, I think it premiered at Sundance and then like had all this hype for a very long time before I finally saw it. And then I was left a little, I, I'm like, I was visually dazzled, but sort of emotionally disconnected from The Witch. Um, and so like, I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't love it the way that a lot of people did. And it felt like it left me a little cold. It sounds like this is leaving you, left you a little cold. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not just because it's set on a rainy rock in, in Maine, but um, <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, it's technically astounding. I mean, the filmmaking, the cinematography, the, the just the kind of boldness of its singular sort of vision are, are you know, Robert Eggers is a very talented director. Something about the movie felt like Robert Eggers was telling us he was a very talented director, if that makes mm. any sense. And, yeah. and that kind of exercise in... Uh, wankery uh, doesn't <laughs> typically sit well with me, you know. Um, that said, I do respect the fact that you know Eggers, with the 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 sort of Sunday at Sensation that was The Witch, that I guess did only okay in box office in America. He really could have taken any bigger project, probably. You know, um, we've seen that narrative many times before with particular, you know, usually white male directors who have one indie hit that then they parlay into directing a Jurassic Park movie. But he instead went the opposite route and did something weirder and smaller and stranger and more alienating. Um, and, and I have to respect it for that. But yeah, I, the, it didn't connect with me in the way that it did for some critics here just because I couldn't shake the sort of metatextual aspect of, of what it says about a, a younger director's career. Uh, I couldn't fully dive into the movie because I was thinking too much about the other stuff. Got it. All right. Um, and then we've got a couple other films uh, that are not these big three films that everyone wants to hear about um, that are really, you know, sort of quietly taking the festival by storm. Uh, can you talk to me about what else you saw that you think is of note? Yeah, well, you said Rocket Man is your Palme d'Or winner, even though it's on the competition. I think, sure, I sure. think that's totally fair, Joanna. <laughs> um, my choice for that would be a film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is in the main competition. It's directed by Celine Sciamma, who did a movie called Girlhood a few years ago that people really liked. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is, she wrote the movie. It's a, it's a, I think it's set in the 18th century in France in this kind of lonely manor house where a painter uh, comes to paint a reluctant subject, let's say, a, a woman, a young woman who's about to be married off and the portrait is serving as a kind of like, uh, this being sent to her possible husband is so he can approve of her. And so these two women have to kind of negotiate each other while one of them is painting a portrait of her in secret. And so it's this slow burn romance between the two of them. Uh, it's a movie that is populated almost entirely just by women. It's beautifully filmed. It resonates on you know, just pure dramatic, romantic, tragic levels, but it speaks so subtly and smartly to our current time. It touches on issues of reproductive rights. It touches on this sort of constricting forces of patriarchy uh, about how women then and now are, you know, in, in, in not just certain cultures, but all cultures around the world uh, have their passion and desires and longing sort of repressed or at least invalidated. And I just think it's a, it's a wonderful bit and far, I guess maybe far bit for me to define this, but like it's a wonderful piece of feminist filmmaking from a really talented director who is, I think, going to only rise from here because it's probably been the most rapturously received movie here. Excellent. All right. And, and what else should we be looking forward to? Um, I would say the other huge standout for me, well, the Pedro Almodovar movie with uh, Antonio Banderas, Pain and Glory, that's very autobiographical about Almodovar himself. That's really lovely. And and I know that um, that he's that Banderas is going to get a huge Best Actor push. So that's something we should definitely keep an eye on. But um, my other big standout uh, at the festival um, thus far, I mean, I'm only here for a couple more days, so I don't think anything will beat it, is, is Parasite, um, the new film from Bong Joon-ho, who people, you know, stateside know from Okja and Snowpiercer. He made uh, The Host a huge like Korean monster film and, and, and a lot of other films in Korea. Yeah. Um, and, and this is him returning to Korean language cinema and and once again looking at class struggle, this time in a more literal sense, there's no there are no monsters in this one or anything like that. And it is just striking. It starts as this caper comedy and then morphs into this absolutely devastating tragedy um, that 
speaks so poignantly to all of the class anxiety and inequity that uh, we're feeling in this modern age, both in, I mean, for people in South Korea, which has had such a huge economic boom, which has been great for some people and left many others behind. Uh, we see that reflected in Chinese cinema now, certainly American cinema, you know, European cinema. So I just think that he arrived with this film and just kind of stated plainly the times we're living in. And it's just really something to, to behold. Excellent. Um, well, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for all of these films. What What else can you tell me sort of about the, um, we'll get more into this. I know we'll be talking about your experience at Cannes for a couple more weeks to come, but is there anything else you notice, sort of like larger trend wise at the festival that we at home might have missed watching it closely through social media, anything like on the ground everyone's talking about? Well, I think can has been I've mentioned it a bunch on the podcast already but like can has been facing something of an existential crisis recently where big American studios are wondering well is it really worth it to take your film there it's a it's a festival in May it's well before award season really kicks into gear does the movie get forgotten if you premiere it here I plenty of American movies you know were brought here so I think people still find the value in it you know the the festivals rejected Netflix and that's all all that that stuff is happening and I don't know, I think some of that unease was reflected, it's been reflected here in that like the festival feels a little bit scattered. It feels, things feel a bit disorganized. It doesn't help that the weather's been crummy. Um, and I think that the great thing about that though is that shining like a bright beacon through all of that fog of the unknown was Vanity Fair's fabulous party hosted <laughs> by our editor-in-chief Radhika Jones at the Hotel du Cap at Antibes, which, you know, it was pouring rain, which was such a bummer because there's so much beautiful outdoor deck space at this hotel to, to enjoy during the party typically, but people had to kind of huddle inside. But the kind of silver lining of that was that it meant that everyone was close and you had to talk to people and interact rather than kind of hiding out on a faraway kind of couch or outside or something. Yeah. Um, so that for that one night, at least, I can felt a very, I guess, close and sort of convivial place. Um, but I think that those persistent questions about the festival's identity certainly have been brought more to the fore this year. And it certainly helps that you have a sort of Tarantino movie to kind of paste over some of those cracks and be like, look, 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 still, still, it's still big. Right. Um, but I, th- I think that the festival um, is going to have to reassess some things. And I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned about the Tarantino movie, about these people not getting into lines is I think they've really got to work on the hierarchy of who gets into what because mm. because of the way the press schedule is is organized studios now or distributors are, are hosting these kind of secret small press screenings in the morning for journalists who are feeling a little bit like you know, burdened by um, the regular press schedule. And I went to one uh, this week and I was happy to be invited or, or I kind of begged to be invited. And I'm not kidding you, Joanna, every single person there except for like two people was a white man. And mm-hmm. and then you look at who has the top badges, who gets into the movies first. And it's just, it's so not diverse in the most old and cliched way possible. And I'm just like, you know, th- that has to change because the world has changed and is changing. And this festival cannot just like stick its head in the sand on those matters. And, you know, other film festivals do it fine where they don't have this kind of rigidly tiered system. I think there is a way to do it. And I hope that the festival figures it out because there's no reason why someone like the great Karen Hahn should be in line for Tarantino's movie for three hours and then not get in, which what happened to her? Uh, yeah, I've, I heard a few of that from from people who do great work at great outlets being shut out of, of screenings. And it's uh, it's disheartening to hear. Uh, imagine flying all that way and, and not getting it. Not that you should be able to get into every single thing. I understand that there are priorities. But yeah, I I, I, I will support this call to can to, to maybe reconsider a system yeah. that has long been in place but should be looked at uh, in 2019. All right, Richard. Well, um, anything else you want to talk to me about? Uh, Flaky, buttery French pastries, beautiful people uh, sunbathing on the shore. Anything else from Cannes that that is worth discussing right now? Well, for those curious, my no carbs in Cannes plan for 2019 lasted two days before (laughs) I just inhaled an entire pizza. So whoops on that front. Um, Uh But no, I think it's been good. I think I I should absolutely mention that our colleague Julie Miller has been out here with me doing wonderful interviews and coverage of events and things like that. So definitely seek out her work. She is an invaluable colleague to have here. 
and yeah, I think while while Cannes might be in a little bit of a crisis, I think there's still a lot to be celebrated here. So I hope that people will seek out the films I mentioned and other ones. And uh, you know, I think we have a lot to talk about as we, you know, I guess we're however many months from Oscars, but there there is stuff to talk about here for for sure. So people would be wise to hopefully go back and uh, look at our Cannes coverage. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Richard. We can't wait to hear even more when you're back stateside and we're all together for the next episode of Little Gold Men. But I will be, you know, planning my glittery sequined covered uh, costume that I am definitely going to wear to my screening of Rocket Man, And we will compare notes on that later on. Um, can't wait to see it. And uh, <laughs> abiento. Abiento. Thanks, Richard. So now, as promised, we're going to move on to our conversation between Sonia Soraya and Leslie Headland about season one of Netflix's Russian Doll. I'm sitting here with Leslie Headland, the co-creator of Russian Doll, along with Amy Poehler and Natasha Leon. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Oh, that's Sonia. good. I'm great. How's your campaign going for Russian Doll? I feel like you're just doing a lot of interviews and talking yeah. to people, right? Well, this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. Um, right, I'm yeah. very familiar with it because as a fan of everything, you know, I noticed the award season and coming up as an assistant, like that was something. Actually, I think awards was like one of the first sections mm-hmm. that I worked in when I worked as an assistant. In right, at Miramax. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is the first time I've done it myself. It's very, it's very exciting and there is like a lot to talk about with this show. So it's kind of easy, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like it doesn't feel like I'm promoting something I don't care about or like, you right. know, or I just had a small part in or I don't quite understand the inner workings of. I mean, it was something that... I was on for, I think, from start to finish, almost almost four years, you know, like if you count like from today, you know, back to really originally being approached by Amy and Natasha and ask them kind of saying like, here are all these ideas and this character we want to do and we're thinking about this party and we're thinking about like maybe she dies every episode and we think it's about these things and we feel like the, the potential for a series is here you know, do you want to come on board and kind of be the, you know, third point of this triangle and kind of come up with the answers and the rules for what this world is going to be and what kind of show it's going to be tonally, if it's going to ride that sci-fi line, is it going to be a straight comedy, is it going to also delve into some deeper stuff? So it's like, it's fun to talk about the show because I've been, <laughs> I'm like always happy to talk about it because it it's something that I feel like I worked a really long time on and worked very hard on. I didn't realize it was four, like it's been four years. I guess that maybe it's not four years. Maybe it's more like three, but. But it speaks to how long it, how considered it is, I guess, yeah. and how thoughtful, uh, like you, you've packed in a lot of ideas into this show. Yeah, it was a long gestating project. Mm-hmm. It is not, it was certainly not, you know, for how flashy its premise is, it's not like a premise-based show where right. you went in and you pitched, you know, it's Groundhog Day with Natasha Leon. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was really like we went in and said, here is this entire world and this is how it's going to be built and these are literally the locations we're going to be Right. filming at and featuring in the East Village. These are the characters, like everyone from, you know, Maxine to Mike to um, uh, to Alan. Like, mm-hmm. these were all people that, you know, once we started our writer's room, they developed into different things, but they were all carefully considered components in the overall makeup of a character study of Nadia. I love that you said gestating as if you and Natasha and Amy were all like <laughs> pregnant at the same time. And, I think like, we kind of were. Like, we were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Either that or it was some sort of like Dario Argento like hellscape <laughs> where we're all giving birth to like Satan's baby. Like, you know? I mean, it's I, like a coven. You I know? feel like Nadia would be like so proud of that. Like yes, she'd be. Yeah. Oh, she'd be like hail Satan. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about. I mean, I think that, so I'm a TV critic, and I think that when filmmakers or playwrights come to TV, 
there's a lot of things that are the same and a lot of things that are different. And what's great about Russian Doll is it's, I, I, so Natasha's been calling it a four hour movie and I, she's been having this, <laughs> no, it's great. She's been having this like public back and forth with Alan Sepinwall, who's a critic at Rolling Stone because he really hates it when people call DV shows like X long oh, movies. And right. so she's that's like right. teasing him about it. And I think it's very funny to watch. Like, I'm back. I'm back. I think yeah. it's, right, right. I but, understand. But I'm curious because to me, Russian Doll, it's very episodic. Every episode kind of hinges on the previous and it feels like a season that you, you know, you marathon watch and you get the whole the whole twist that way. I was curious if it felt different when you were making it, if it felt significantly different from making a feature. No, it actually didn't. I mean, listen, we did a lot of things that are very TV-esque, meaning mm-hmm. we um, cross-boarded, mm-hmm. we block shot, like mm-hmm. we, um, we, it was a show, mm-hmm. you know, like we were very thoughtful about how we were utilizing our supporting cast. We were very thoughtful about what our hero locations were going to be, how we were going to utilize them, what needed to be built, what needed to be in blocks, you know, one and three, and how could we consolidate those? So like coming from both film, TV, and theater, I would say there was a lot of TV in there. Mm -hmm. Where I agree with Natasha is that we did not approach this as an episodic show, meaning we, we wanted to have it be very influenced by episodic television in the sense that each episode follows the flow of an episode, Mm. but they are not conventional episodes. They are not built around an ongoing linear storyline that is going to have some sort of narrative payoff. You get, and spoilers ahead if you haven't (laughs) won, Um, you do get the internal payoff to the character in episode seven and then the external payoff of, you know, kind of what I liked to call in the writer's room, the save the clock tower moment, (laughs) because I didn't know how else to describe it um, when we were still trying to figure out what it was. It's a really good Back to the Future reference. Thank you. We got to save the clock tower. And I don't know what that means. And it's not even properly referencing the movie, but that is what it is. And all the nerds will get it. But yeah, so she's not wrong about that. And actually, like I've said this in interviews before, I liken it to an album more Mm. so than a movie, like in the sense that, you know, we called it a four hour movie a lot of times when we were shooting it when we were editing it we were editing it very much like a movie mm. in the sense that we were watching full episodes um, together which you don't get to do in TV a lot like that was one of the great things about Netflix is like um, in conventional television you are turning in those episodes at a particular time with Netflix we were able to turn in episodes like in chunks mm. so we actually could sit there so before we turned in seven and eight we were able to watch the entire series in one sitting and get a sense of what that felt like we couldn't necessarily go in and change stuff because we'd locked a lot of stuff, but we were still changing. um, We locked picture, but we were still changing sound. We were still changing music. We were still, they were still, uh, you know, there was still this consideration of like, even as the doors are closing behind us, can we still make this feel like a full, um, you know, four hour experience? And so to me, it's like, yeah, each of these songs, yeah, they're great. You can listen to them. They work as episodes. They are structured like conventional episodes. But, you know, the gestalt of it, like the whole versus the sum of the parts, I feel like is actually a little bit more akin to sitting down and listening to a whole album, sitting down and watching an entire movie. That's funny about their fight, though. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very good natured. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or they're, they're, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, (laughs) I can't think of those two, two people who are more... Um, adept to, to rib each other yeah, about right. something exactly. would be Natasha and Alan, yeah. Well, what's interesting, I mean, thinking about how people watch things on Netflix, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, or, or you're absolutely dead on that most people are probably just sitting down and watching the whole thing, you know, because Netflix yes. does make it so easy to stack those episodes. And also, like, it's a propulsive show. Like, you want, you get to episode, th- like, you're in episode four and you're like, I really need to now see I what need happens to know what's going on. next, yeah. right? Um, but then there's also... I think the the thing that you have to do with making a TV series for Netflix, which is different from making a feature, it's different from making episode to episode, week to week, which is you really need to hook people in to b- make them believe that the payoff is going to be worth it. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think I remember reading an, as an interview that you and Natasha were really trying to keep the premise under wraps so that you could oh, have yes. that element of surprise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely, you know, I had made peace with the fact a little bit early on that we would not be able to keep the fact that she dies a Mm, secret, mm. like that that would probably be in the trailer um, as the premise of the show. But what was fun was when the script went out and the pilot uh, went out 
and and I worked very hard to kind of make sure that when that death, that first death happens on page 12 or whatever it was, that people really did feel like, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> like, what, wait, what is this show? Like, I thought this was going to be a show about, like, Natasha Leone being cool in New York, and it right. actually is about that, but not realizing that it was going to be, for lack of a better term, as ballsy as, like, we're going to kill off our character now, and as ballsy as, like, that fourth episode of, or the end of three of, like, we're going to introduce an entirely new character that we actually have featured in the other episodes you just didn't notice, mm-hmm. and we made sure you didn't notice mm-hmm. on purpose. But uh, there's, like, an internet, there are uh, YouTubers that I really love, and, and one of their jokes is like you may not have noticed it but your brain did and and, and <laughs> right. it's it's true like that the you know cherry picking and the easter egg dropping of where alan appears in one two and three is very considered and kind of like hopefully plotted out in a way so that when he does show up in a way it feels like the fulfillment of something like right. like the same um joe wong who was the composer the same cue happens every time she kind of recognizes that like hey oh. that's that guy do you know what i mean like and the camera is always moving in a particular kind of way and framing her in a particular kind of way she's actually looking the same screen direction both times in one and two it's like there were these mirror kind of very thoughtful thoughtfully planned ways so that that when that payoff that you're talking about came, it didn't feel like, oh, you're just doing that to shock me so that I keep watching, but that your brain was actually releasing the serotonin (laughs) of like, oh, that's a payoff. I didn't realize it was a payoff, but it's a payoff. And that's why I joke all the time. I mean, I said it in the writer's room. I said it when we pitched it. I was like, my goal would be that when people finish this, they just watch it again immediately. Like that it's, that's why I liken it to, because that's the way I watch movies. Like that's why I liken it to an album. Because I'm like, hopefully you can just put it back on. Right. And be like, oh my God, remember this part? Like, this part was crazy. I don't even know what that's about. But I kind of love this moment. I love this chorus. I love this verse. I love this, like, instrumental, you know, like, it doesn't, it can be very much enjoyed narratively that first time through, but ultimately you'd be able to experience it environmentally and atmospherically from there on out. Well, and I mean, it's funny because to me, the meta- the other metaphor that works is a video game, which yes. is that you yes, might you- play through a video game and yes. then want to play it again to experience oh my God, it. So- so true. And I'm yeah. a big gamer, so that's exactly right. I mean, it's so funny. I, I love Fallout. I mm-hmm. love, love Fallout. And I I played the new, you know, um, multiplayer, the 76, and, and I played a lot of 4. And um, my wife was, you know, <laughs> she jokes like she's a video game widow when they come out. You know, she's like, I don't even know where you are. <laughs> like, where, where are you? Um, are we poor now? Like, do we, like <laughs> is any money being made? Um, but, but truthfully, like, you know, when I restarted Fallout um, in survival mode like I they, they released survival mode and I was like oh this is awesome this is how I wanted to experience the game from the beginning my wife came in and was like haven't you finished this game you know like six months later and I was like no that's not how it works it's open world it's like you're gonna continue to find new things and I do think that finding a, a, a whatever the Venn diagram between binging and, and video game playing that mm. that that um, uh, Russian doll falls into is like you know mm. chef's kiss if anybody picks up on that or feels that I'm I'm very happy. Well, I I love that that's like a part of the structure of the show. Like that she not just she's a gamer, but also that feeling of like waking up at the, your safe point and you're back. Like yes. you have another <laughs> life is like yeah. It's a familiar. I think there's something very satisfying. Like psychologically, it works for your viewers who are also gamers. They're like, oh right, this is what's happening. Like right. she's, she she can't get past the level. Yeah, and um, I do think that like when people ask me about like the if I may mm-hmm. interrupt you for a moment when people mm-hmm. ask about the critical response to the show, one of the things that I say and I, I haven't said it kind of like in this type of <laughs> an interview setting, but saying it to just my friends and stuff is that I was like, I think two, listen, I'm really proud of the show. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I think two things contributed to us getting the kind of reviews that we did. One of them is that there are more female TV critics than there are movie critics. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there are more women of color. Mm-hmm. Like there are, it's just a more diverse group. And so they're not really looking at a female driven show from the same perspective that uh, a male critic might be taking a look at a female driven film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's as, as clear cut as that. I just mean like for lack of a better term, my fans would be in TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like like the women that know about my plays, the women that watch uh, Orange is the New Plaque. Like, you know, these are our people, essentially. Right. And the same also being that there's a lot of overlap between TV critics and video game critics, that, that they also understood what the the structure of that was going to be. Mm-hmm. And they could 
sort of know right away, oh, this isn't Groundhog Day. Like, this isn't that premise. It's this. Uh, it's the Edge of Tomorrow premise. Like, mm. it's actually a different premise than that, and we can kind of differentiate that in the way that we recap and in the way that we break down the series, you know? Right. Whereas I think, you know, all apologies, if it were a four-hour movie, I think we would be up against a different kind of algorithm, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's not really a... I don't really mean it as, like, a gender divide. It's more like that way of criticizing things is so different mm. and it comes from a different there's like basically like a different gene pool of critic for that mm. and um and i just felt like as those reviews started to come in i was like oh we hit a weird nerve here where everyone got it in a way that like I was very used to people not getting stuff and I think Natasha too we were both like oh everyone got it like nobody's going like but wait I didn't understand why the thing happened and the stuff and all of those things and it's like oh no every every review whether they liked it or not was like we understand what the show is and um and that's half the battle Hmm. Right. I remember reading that you felt that with Bachelorette that people didn't quite get it, right? Like, I've heard you say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think, again, I don't think it's a gender divide. I think it's more of like TV feels like the Wild West in a way, whereas movies, I can feel this like tension between the VOD release and the and the limited release and the wide release, you know, and then the streamers of like, how do we let people know what's high end art and what's low end art? It's kind right. of like the New York Magazine, you know, um, approval matrix. Yes, right, you know, yeah. like it's like yeah. you can feel like you can feel in reviews, you know, and I think truly just women people of color, LGBTQ, like mm -hmm. these people are working in the limited release streamer, you know, um, VOD release world. That's just where we are offered the amount of money that we need to make things. Um, we brain, we are branching out into other stuff, obviously. Um, so that's what I mean. It's just, it's not actually like a, di a divide that's that clear. It's just much more like that's where we end up making things. Right. And I think you can feel the, the film critics <laughs> with a capital F, capital C, <laughs> you know, kind of going like, how do we remain the gatekeepers of what is a proper film and what is, a, and what is content? Right. Yeah, there are more, I think, from my perspective, there are more sacred cows in film. Like there right. are more, it's a hallowed form, it's goddess history. And TV, as you said, the Wild West. And also I think it's just because maybe it has the freedom of being a, a quote unquote lower form, you see it changing a lot. Like, yeah. like so you were, we were talking about the video game approach, like Bandersnatch, which is also on Netflix. Yes, is yeah. Such a huge right hook in trying to change how we watch TV. You know, I think there's something, and, and what's really interesting about your career is you've been very like form agnostic. Like you mm. started in theater, but you have very sort of seamlessly, I think, transitioned into, you know, sort of character, character driven kind of funny dramedy, maybe feature films, but then also this show, which is a show, but it's also like a puzzle box show. Mm. It's a mystery show. It, it deals with branching timelines. It's it's got like clear science fiction DNA. Mm. Um, you're saying you're a gamer. I mean, it just feels, you feel really comfortable. <laughs> like we know in different, you know, tell me a middle, I mean, well, I mean, what is it like transitioning from theater to camera? What is it like from transitioning from theater to TV, oh, do, man. do they feel relatable, fungible, or does it feel like? Absolutely. Right? I mean, how no. much time do you have? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel, I, truly, it's such a good question, and I feel like it's impossible to answer in a soundbite. But I think what I'll say is, like, first of all, I love doing it. Mm. Like, there's no part of me that is concerned about whether a story is on a digital platform or whether it's a play in a 99-seat black box. Like, right. I, to me, it's I'm thrilled by all of them. You yeah. know, like, so I, I wouldn't say that, you know, moving from one to the other is anxiety inducing. What I would say is that it's very joyful. I find it to be very joyful. I find TV and streaming to be much more inclusive in its approach in the way that I would assume, you know, Roger Corman was back in the day. Meaning like it's much more of a like, hey, you got an idea? Great. Why don't you go make it? Don't waste my time or my money, and I'll see it when it's done. Do you know what I mean? Like, which is why I think you see a lot of people who, you know, like all, think about all the directors that came up under that guy, like Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Peter Bogdanovich. Like, the reason you had that influx of talent was because there was this one guy who basically was like, "Why don't you try something? Why don't mm. you tell me a story?" You know, like.
like, let's see if you can do it sink or swim, go, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, and so, you know, being a part of that generation of storytellers, I think you have to be flexible. Mm -hmm. Like, I I guess you don't have to be. I mean, you could just say, like, I'm only making films or I'm only writing plays. But I just find it to be kind of exciting. You know, like, I just think, like, you know, if someone is willing to back an idea that I'm pitching, you know, like, then I'm willing to really put in consideration what container that content is coming in. Mm. And, you know, for me, I never forgot we were making a Netflix series. And not just a streaming series or an online series, but a, a Netflix series. You mm. know, like, that that specifically, this was going to be something that was going to be on a platform that is designed in a particular way. Mm. Like, in the same way that when making The Bachelorette, I didn't, you know, I thought we are making the independent movie version of, uh, you know, Hurley Burley. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. we are making the female Hurley Burley. We thank God for Bridesmaids. They're letting us do whatever we want, <laughs> which is their fault. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, thank the Lord that movie came out because truly they were like, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. I had been getting notes all the way up until like, you know, um, the release of that movie that was like, take out the cocaine, take out, you know, these jokes about her weight, like take out the meanness of the characters, like women don't want to see this, like these kinds of movies don't make money, like all this stuff. And then all of a sudden someone knocks down the door and they're like, hey, do you want to make a movie? Do you want to make this into a movie? And I'm like, yes, I would be can happy to. Can you put more to. cocaine in it? Can you put can more you- cocaine in it? Can there be more, like, can they be more assholes? You know, like, it's truly yeah. like, so, you know, I think to um, female artists, and I, I don't know if you can relate with this in your field, but I think sometimes, you know, or or marginalized artists as well, mm. I would say, like, I think sometimes you're kind of waiting for that perfect moment. And I think now is a time where, you know, content is being distributed in so many different ways and stories can be told in so many different ways. Yeah. And it's kind of like, why not just adjust and um, or jump on the, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but again, I'm a writer for a living and I can't think of one. <laughs> but it's like, a, you know, like, let's jump on the surfboard and like hang 10 or whatever, <laughs> you know, but like really going with the flow of like where, you know, who is encouraging this type of story mm-hmm. um, and the type of story I'm interested in telling. And I think that can be, you know, so many different places that could be way at the top of the head of some studio, or it could be, like I said, a 99 seat black box theater. Like, I I don't know if if I really need to have a say so much in where the story goes as much as I already know where it goes based on who's interested in producing it. I mean, and something that I think that comes out with TV more than it does with independent film and certainly more with theater is how big collaboration is not just like it's not just something you opt into. It's like collaboration is required. Oh, like it is totally agree. such a huge team effort. Oh right? my gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, gosh, that's so funny. It's so true in movies. There's this, I think a lot of the rampant, like, you know, uh, sexism and, and racism and, in, in hiring practices and film directing is rooted in this idea that the film director is some sort of all knowing being right. that like, is you know, whereas like, you're absolutely right in television. It is like, aggressively collaborative. Like, it it is actually impossible. Even if you're David Chase, Vince Gilligan, Mm. you know, Marta Kaufman, uh, uh, Genji Cohen, like, you're still faced with, like, right, there's a room full of people. Like, (laughs) right, there's a, there's a, there's a a board of execs that I'm talking to. Right, there's, like, there's just, there is always a room full of people where you are pitching your idea. You Mm. are never not pitching the show Mm. in one form or another. And I think that in a way for a show like Russian Doll, that was an incredible process because it was so complicated and it was so weird that to constantly be not having to defend the show, but having to pitch and explain the show from you know, to writers, producers, the editors, the the uh, department heads, to mm. the cast, like, you know, to kind of go like, okay, we're in loop 17. What happens in loop 17 <laughs> is all the animals are gone. Mm. So one of the things we're thinking, and everyone's like, what? You know, like, what are you talking about? You know, like, and I think that like the level of autonomy that's given to or suspected to be given to um, filmmakers probably wouldn't work with a show like mm. ours. Mm. I think it, it, I think it had to be, you know, the collective 
like I was saying, like the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Like there isn't one kind of person at the, the uh, you know, this all-knowing being that had everything in their head right. and knew exactly how to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, we're going to start talking about Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> let's keep moving on. Just read my Twitter feed. It's fine. <laughs> I, I did, yeah. Um, like, no. you don't need to hear it here. <laughs> um, so was there any particular reason that watermelons and breaking mirrors, like, appealed to you for the way that Lenora expresses her? Oh, yes. I mean, those were – watermelons felt like a great signifier in the sense that – I feel like if you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, you recognize that very mm. quickly. Mm. Um, that was something that I did in Bachelorette, too. It was kind of like the girls that understand this and went through this will know certain things, and mm. other people will not, and it's okay that they don't. Um, uh, but I do put a lot of Easter eggs for self-destructive women in my work just to be like, I see you. Like, I, we've all been there, you know, like... Um, in one way or another. And so I don't remember who who specifically pitched that, whether it was Natasha or mm. one of the writers or whatever, but that's how I thought about it, and I think that's why it stuck. Um, the mirrors were just the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, mm. that was just a thing that, like, you know, somebody pitched or, you know, it started, ended up in the script, and it was like, oh, right, because she's in front of a mirror in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, like, it's like all of a sudden it was that thing that just started, like, sometimes I think you stumble upon that idea or one of the writers will pitch something, and it just becomes that, like, oh, my God, like, I, the image that's coming up for me is that, like, glowing orb of, like, mm. of, like, of, like, inspiration of, like, oh, my gosh, this is, and just the idea that, like, that episode is called reflection and that it's about like if we if you don't have mirrors if you don't have the navel gazing if you are not the only person looking at you and you can only rely on somebody else to tell you what it is that their experience of you is what kind of a person are you like i, I mean i don't know that was one that probably was just a you know a pitch or you know something brilliant that natasha said and and as it developed into the script and then into the shooting, I was just like, whoa, this is fucking awesome. I'm so happy we made this choice, you know? The thing that gets me with the mirrors, the scene that gets me is when Nadia vomits up or like spits oh, up a mirror. Yes. And the idea of yeah. having like a mirror inside you felt really related. I mean, you were talking about body image and Oof, stuff. Like, Yeah, I yeah. have chills too. I, I wish I could say that I was, like, on a lotus flower and, like, totally understood what that moment was. But it was much more of, like, <laughs> an instinct moment of, like, she has to be ended here. Like, we have to we have to completely break her down here. How do we, how do, we do that? Um, I also think that beyond the symbolism of the mirror shard, I think one of the things that I found to be the biggest challenge of the show was that death had to be scary in that first moment. Then death had to become funny mm -hmm. because we didn't have the budget to keep killing her that dramatically. <laughs> so, so, so death had... What a had classic to, TV answer. Yeah, I mean, like, truly. So, so death had to go from being scary mm -hmm. to being funny to back to being scary again. Mm -hmm. And And I think you can go one way or the other, you know, like, but... It's hard to go all the way, you know, to, to start that hard, to go all the way to like, you know, we're getting hit by an AC unit <laughs> or like <laughs> stung by a swarm of bees, you know, like, and then come all the way back to what she does, what, and that brilliant fucking performance that she gives in, in 107. And to get to that point where the audience is like, I am terrified. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if this means she's dead for real. I don't know if, I don't know what the, I just saw, like really leaning into those horror elements um, and, and specifically psychological horror, like like possession or The Shining and, and, and grabbing from a lot of those or hereditary. I mean, that mm. was a movie, that was a movie that came out once we had finished shooting, you know, mm. like, and we saw it, um, I think when we were editing and we were like, holy crap, really like scary. what a movie, like what, a, what a, and that kind of emboldened us too. We were like, "Look at what this guy is doing. <laughs> this is fucking nuts." Like, was it was it new for you to lean into the horror elements or to lead into the the even psychological horror? It doesn't feel. I mean, it doesn't feel like the two films that you've done anyway. Oh yeah, that's true. I guess like visually, they're not horror films. Right. But but I. It's funny. I always think of Cronenberg when people ask me this question because Cronenberg once said really that his films are told from the perspective 
of the disease. Mm. And I feel like every story I've told has been told from the perspective of the internal problem, whether it's, you know, the toxic femininity of white women and how, you know, they're both ridiculously self-entitled and supremely self-destructive to, you know, Nadia pulling, you know, confronting her younger self and pulling glass out of her mouth. Like, to me, those are kind of the same ideas, like like uh, Lainey's struggle in sleeping with other people and Jake's constant infidelity are are symptoms of larger self-hatred um, and self-loathing that the that the movie is and the stories are being told kind of in a way where I'm trying to lull you with the comedy and the and how aesthetically pleasing the films are into like getting into that place of like, all oh, right, you, you know, like. <laughs> Right, I forgot. Shame, you know, like, or hatred or self-hatred or, or trauma or um, mental disorders, eating disorders. Like, you know, any of these kind of things we don't really want to look at or when we look at them, we have an idea of how we're supposed to approach them visually, which is using horror tropes or using, like, handheld kind of, like, isn't it real kind of vibes. Like, but to really lull everyone into this feeling of, like, I'm watching one movie uh, or one story, rather, and then to realize, like, oh, I'm actually watching. I kind of knew the whole time I was watching this and I'm now identifying with either amorality, you know, uh, childhood trauma, like just not that those things have anything in common. It's just that they're both hard things to talk about and to make visual. Mm. Um, even the process of recovery or therapy is a very internal thing. It's one of the reasons I think people don't seek help is because it's kind of boring. You know what I mean? Like it's really a lot of fucking work totally. on yourself. And like if any, if I hope if anything, Russian Doll kind of gives a glossy feel to like what self-discovery might look like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and feel a little bit more like uh, something that could be a little bit more appetizing. Um, than, and, f- and fun. And fun. <laughs> because truly like any work that I've done on myself in that arena has been, has given me back in spades, you know, like, and, and my work has gotten infinitely better. And I, this comes from somebody who went to Tisch and considered herself to be a tortured artist at like 22, <laughs> you know, and was sure that like only suffering would be, bring great art, you know? So it's like, yeah. 20 years later, I'm like, it's fine. Just, just stay alive. Just stay alive. <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong. You have done six of the seven deadly sins for your yes, plays? Yes, and the seventh one is finished. Oh, it is? It is. It's uh, Pride. Okay. Uh, the, save the best for last. It is um, a play I, uh, called Cult of Love which is a funny, weird title now that I say it like out loud for some reason. Um, and I'm very, very excited. It's about a family. Uh, I like to think of like the conventional sense of the word of the of the sin and then kind of like a more sp- playful spin on it, I guess. And so I thought um, when it comes to pride, um, people's opinions and saying them very loudly and being confidently right or assuming they were confidently right when they actually are terribly wrong. But also I thought of like a pride of lions and I thought it would be great to do a family drama. And so I, I it's a family drama about um, four adult children and their partners who come back for Christmas, um, you know, to spend Christmas with like the matriarch and patriarch. Oh. And, uh, you know, things go terribly awry. And uh, it's very, very autobiographical and personal and very much about um, what it was like to come out to my very, very Christian family and but also to become, you know, like this kind of very loudmouthed artist (laughs) within my very Christian family Mm. is also interesting. And so, um, you know, it's not a one to one like none of my stuff really is like as much as I would like to be some of my characters. I'm, I'm not. But but I would say that those four siblings like definitely sum up different parts of myself that are really wrestling with where I came from and and whether or not I'm still affected by a lot of the mo- both positive and negative things that that happened in my in my childhood and my adolescence. Yeah. Is that that's the theater company that's actor 
uh, actor first, actor centric. Is that yes, right? Yes, like yes, yes, that's right. The yeah, the, um, yeah, the artistic directors are all actors who also perform in the shows. Yeah. So is that how you developed it in LA? That, yeah. I, I didn't develop that show that way, but most of the first ones I did. And yeah. actually, that has very keenly developed who I am. If I do have any sort of process, it changes, like you said, between different forms. But if I do have any process, it is starting with, usually starting with an actor. Well, and in Russian Doll with Natasha. Exactly. I mean, I, I think there's like there's so much strength in that process and you have found a way to make it work. Yeah, I mean, Russian Doll was exactly that. It was starting, I mean, you know, uh, Natasha probably would say the timeline of of me being involved started at a particular time, which is true. But for me, it started when we first met and she was like, where's my De Niro role? (laughs) You know, she was like, I want my tough guy role, you know? And I was like, God, you're right. Like, where is your tough guy role? Who is that person? And what does she look like? And what kind of world does she exist in? And, you know, and, um, uh, and so for me, like that spark kind of happened there in the same way that the first time I met um, Jason Sudeikis, it was the same thing. I was like, who's this guy? Mm. I was like, man, wow, mm. like what, what a, what a weirdo and like what a, what a handsome, like what a very charismatic kind of handsome guy um, who also is incredibly sensitive and, and, um, and kind of not the type of male lead that we really see as much anymore. I mean, usually it is, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of the the underdog person. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that is kind of like, it's almost like the men have become the female characters in the romantic comedies. Like they've become the people that are like, you know, I have a dream to be with a beautiful person and have money and to have a great life. And I I believe I deserve all of those things. And now this will be the story of how I get them, you mm. know? And, um, <laughs> and by the way, they should have those stories and that's great. But when I met him, I was like, oh, maybe there's like a throwback here in some form of like looking back at where the the female character does become more the centric character of the of the romantic comedy and that her problems are less kind of more of what my problems were at the time, which is like more internal than external. It's not that, you know, you don't have the partner or you don't have the job or you don't have the stuff. It's that on the inside, you feel completely dead (laughs) (laughs) and unable to get out of bed in the morning. Um, But uh, I mean, I think it's really cool that you have a process that starts with, I mean, there's, there's something, um, I know that that, that other uh, directors have worked that way before other writers of the directors work that way, but it does feel like there's something different about the fluidity with which you approach a lot of different genres and a lot of different kinds of oh, work. thank you. And I think that like coming to a performer first and being like, what can I do with you is like such an interesting twist oh, on our typical you. process, right? And yeah. build something around them. No, totally. I mean, I just, I, thank you for saying that. And I really, I, completely agree. And I think it's a little bit of Tish and Playwrights Horizons where I went to school. And I also think a lot of it is Iama. Like mm. they were the people that, you know, believed in me when, when kind of no one knew who I was, <laughs> you know, like, and, um, and, and I was thinking specifically as I was writing these plays, like, well, I'm writing for a particular group of actors. Like I know who will nail this role. Like I haven't seen this person do this thing. Like I remember the girl that originally played, you know, Regan in Bachelorette in their production, which is Kirsten's character in the movie, I had her play like a buttoned up like kind of Christian girl in the next play. And she was like, Jesus. <laughs> she was like, what is this 180 that, that's going on? And I was like, I think you can do it. Like, I was yeah. like, I would love to see you play this character. And I was just talking with an actor the other day who's, he. I was like, you know, what what could you do if you could do anything? And and we were having like a general and and he said, you know, everybody sees me as this vulnerable, kind of like kind person. And he's like, I want to play a psychopath. <laughs> I want to. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll write you Nightcrawler. We'll get you a Nightcrawler. I'll think about it. <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Leslie. Thank you Thank for you. having me. That does it for this week's episode of Little Gold Men from many points around the globe. We'll be back next week, probably more of us in one place for once. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com where you can see all of Richard's coverage from Cannes, our coverage of our own party, the red carpet, everything else. And you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I feel like maybe by now you know where to find us. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.